Hi again. I was so looking forward to teaching from the Gospel of Matthew tonight. We're two and a half years into a four-year-long teaching series on practicing the way of Jesus. I love it. But I was so looking forward to a little Greek exegesis, a little first century history, a little you thought it meant this. Actually, it means this. Um, that stuff, I was so looking forward to it. But the moment I sat down to begin my research for tonight, I just felt arrested in my spirit um, that I to pass on a very simple word to you. Now, I don't have a direct line to God. Um, Bethany does. I don't. So <laughs> this isn't like, you know, email from Jesus, let me read it to you. This is just my best attempt through my own personality, for better or for worse, to pass on to you as the church family that I am a brother in what I sense the Spirit is saying to our church for the days and weeks ahead, in particular the Holy Spirit Conference. Okay? Does that sound like a plan? It is either way, so I hope you're okay with that. Um, Please turn your Bibles to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. When I was five years old, I was diagnosed with ADD. Some of you are saying that explains so much. Um, I was heading into kindergarten, and the doctors wanted to put me on Ritalin. I, at the time, was in California where I grew up, and there was a professor from UCLA in our church who was an expert in early childhood development, learning theory, kind of pioneer in her field. And as her ministry at the church, she would offer a free consultation for, quote, troubled children. You could still call us that back in the 80s. It's not okay anymore. It was back then. So my parents, who were down here in the front row, immediately signed me up first thing. And apparently, I was just told this story by my mom recently. Apparently, as the story goes, she spent a few hours with me in her office sent me out, called my parents in, and said, ignore the diagnosis. If you drug him and stick him in a classroom for seven hours, it will crush his spirit. He's just bright and wild, all right? And um, then, (laughs) I wasn't expecting that, but thank you. I'm not sure. Um, Like, he is wild. I know it uh, in there. Um, In between my books, I just party, you know? Anyway... Then she said, then she said this, you should think about homeschooling him. Famous last words right there. I don't know if she's still alive, but I need to go and meet with her and say a few things. Um, No, uh, really, I joke about homeschooling, but honestly, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. My childhood was a very happy childhood. It gave me space to basically walk around the woods and read, and not much has changed a few decades later. But it gave me space to discipline my mind and as the portal to my soul and to cultivate habits of self-control and self-discipline and deep work and create space for creativity and all sorts of things that literally I use on a daily basis. And, you know, I'm about five years older than most of those of you that grew up around the church know what I'm talking about. There's like a kind of conservative culture Christian homeschooler kid thing. So I'm about five years older than that, and I found out why recently from my mom over here that it was actually illegal until 1988 in California, which I was in third grade by that time. So my dad down here is a pastor. He had Friday, Saturdays off, so apparently they would not take me out in public on his day off for fear of arrest. Now, if you know my parents down here, look at my parents right now. Just look at them. (laughs) Like collared shirt. It's untucked tonight because he's just living on the wild side, but... (laughs) My parents are the most wonderful people you'll ever meet. Very, and I mean this in the most wonderful way. Middle class, suburban, like 
just straight down, like, you know what I mean? Straight down the middle. When I found this out, I'm like, they're actually punk rock anarchists at heart. (laughs) This is just like rebel against the system. It was my quiet mom down here is amazing. So anyway, all that to say, amazing childhood. And I just, I had a unique experience. And one of my most, not one of my most vivid memory from my entire childhood and that experience has nothing to do with U.S. history or pre-algebra or literature or playing in the woods. By far, my most vivid memory is my mom down here. Because in the morning, we had no, there was no bus to catch, <laughs> clearly. Um, there was no lunch to pack. And so I would wake up, and no matter how early I was up in the morning, my mom was always up first. And I would come out into the living room. Dad was still asleep. But mom... Um, <laughs> Mom would be sitting in her chair right by the window with her Bible open in her lap, either reading the scripture with an, a look of intense kind of concentration on her face or most of the time just staring out the window. Now, my mom down here, God bless her, went deaf at a young age, so she never had any idea that I was in the room. But I just remember waking up and that vivid picture in my mind of mom there in the chair staring out the window. And it was clear to me from a very young age that she had something I did not yet have. If you were to ask her, what are you doing? Because it was clear she wasn't just reading her Bible. We had a rule in our house, our family of origin, no Bible, no breakfast. Judge my parents all you want. I mean, feel free to, I do. But um, <laughs> judge them all you want. All, we, like, we, could not read, we could not have breakfast until we read our Bible. I've been reading through the Bible every year since I was like seven. They were starving me into obedience to Jesus. But... <laughs> Judge them all you want. To this day, I'm the oldest of four kids. All four of us wake up, and the first thing we do in the morning is read our Bible. But it was clear to me she wasn't just reading her Bible. Something else was going on underneath the substrata of that. And when I asked her about it, she would say this weird line to me. She would say, oh, I'm just seeking the face of God. Now, if you grew up in the church, you're used to weird language. And so it's easy to just think, oh, yeah, cool. But if you're new, you recognize, that's weird. What does that even, no, we don't talk like that in real life. What does that even mean? I'm seeking the face of God. But she was getting that language from Scripture. Psalm 24, if you're new to the library of Scripture, the book of Psalms is a collection of ancient Hebrew poetry. The English word psalm is a transliteration of the Greek word psalmos, which literally means a psalm or a poem or a song that is put to music for worship. Most, if not all, of the psalms were originally set to music and used for worship at the temple in Jerusalem for over a thousand years and are still used to this day by both Jews and Christians. In fact, until recently, it was called the Psalter. It is essentially an ancient hymn book, or if you prefer, the drop-down lyrics menu on iTunes. Let's read one example, Psalm 24. Of David, a psalm. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, here it is, who seek your face, God of Jacob. 
Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord almighty, he is the king of glory. I want to talk to you about the word picture in verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. But first, two pieces of backstory to add a little bit of color and texture and depth to Psalm 24. One has to do with history and the other with theology. First off, history. With your finger here in Psalm 24, we're coming right back. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you're new to the Bible, there's a table of contents on page 1. Samuel's in the history literature after the Torah. Once it's also after 1 Samuel. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now, there's no way to know for sure, but a number of scholars, in fact, most scholars, speculate that Psalm 24 was written by King David on the occasion of the story that we are about to read. Now, in context, in particular, those of you that are new to the Bible or a little rusty on your 2 Samuel. In context, Israel, the people of God, is in a bad way. The Ark of the Covenant, which was this box that was covered in gold plate with two carvings of cherubim or spiritual creatures at the top, was far more than a box to ancient Israel. It was the locus point of God's presence. This is pre the coming of Jesus, pre the Spirit in the New Testament. God's presence was over, in a sense, this Box. Um, the word used in the Old Testament in Hebrew is Shekinah, or it's actually technically it's Shekinah. And it is the word that we translate glory, which is not a great translation because I hear glory and I think of fame or celebrity status or all oh, glory to God or whatever. But glory or Shekinah in Hebrew is this idea of the tangible expression of the presence and goodness of God. And so it was literally in a cloud over the top of this Ark of the Covenant. Well, in the story, the Ark, which again, wasn't just a box, it was the locus point of the presence and the goodness of God in Israel, was used and abused by the Israeli people as a weapon of war. God was not down with that. It was a colossal disaster. It was dragged into captivity by the Philistines, pre-David and Goliath, right? It's there for a number of years. Fast forward, now in this story, David has just become king. He's defeated the Philistine Goliath. He's dragged the ark back to the border of Israel down to the south. And now one of his first jobs as king of Israel is to carry the ark of God back to Jerusalem. But remember, this is a thousand years before the New Testament, before the New Covenant, if you know a little bit about theology, where now the Spirit of God is in and on every single follower of Jesus. Paul writes to the church in Corinth that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And another chapter, he writes that the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. At this point in the story, the temple was the temple. All that to say, this story that we're about to read is not about bringing a box back to Jerusalem. It is about bringing the presence and goodness of God back to the people of God. On that note, chapter 6, verse 1. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000, a whole lot of people. He and all his men went to Belah and Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. Again, locus point of God's presence, the center of his rule and reign in the kingdom of God, at that time known as Israel. Now three, they set the ark on a new cart. 
and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. Now, if you know anything about Hebrew literature and what we call the Old Testament, it's very sparse, very minimalist, like before that was a cool thing. Um, this is before a word processor, before the printing press. Most of these stories were not written. They were actually said out loud, put to memory. So whenever you read a detail in any story in the Old Testament, pay close attention. There are very few details in the Old Testament. Most of the stories are very to the point. And notice the repetition here about the cart, about the new cart, about the name of the men that were with the cart, about the man that was walking next to the cart. This is all signposts, signposts from the author of the story. Now, if you were an ancient Israelite, you would pick up on exactly what he's saying. There was, in the Torah, God gave, in the book of Exodus, God gave strict instructions on how Israel was to transport the ark. The Levites, and only the Levites, were to carry the ark on their on poles, like pole bearers, on their shoulders that went through rings that were built into the side of the ark, and they were to never, ever touch it, right? And if you want a mental picture, just think of the first Indiana Jones movie, right? Even the Nazis knew about this law in the Torah, right? Even they got this one right. But notice in the story, do they carry it on poles, No, they put it on a new cart. We read that twice. Not just a cart, a new cart. This shiny new import from Philistine, like it was just beautiful, right? They thought, ah, that cart, take a look at that. That's the new Z9 or whatever. That's fantastic. That's what all the cool kids are doing nowadays is a cart, a new cart. Let's No, seriously, they put it on a new cart. Now, keep reading. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, tambourines, rattles, cymbals, noise, music. It's beautiful. When they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Uzzah reached out and he took hold of the ark of God. Remember, that was off limits. Because the oxen stumbled, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry Because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah, or the outbreak against Uzzah. Now, this sounds to our kind of late modern Portland ears like one heck of an overreaction. You touch the ark and like you're dead. But you have to remember, they are deliberately, this was not an accident, this was not a mistake, they are deliberately breaking the Torah in the name of convenience, what is much easier, and compromise with a pagan culture, what everybody else is doing. And notice that the heart posture underneath that convenience and compromise was, in the language of the text, his irreverence, a lack of what in the Old Testament is called the fear of God, wonder, awe, a sense of trembling before God. Hence the next line, nine. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? We think of fear as always a bad thing, and it's not. There is a healthy kind of fear. When you're standing on the edge of a cliff, on a hike or whatever, and you're scared, that's a healthy kind of fear. 
when you're around a nuclear reactor, all of those of you that are around a nuclear reactor on a regular basis, like I am, I know, um, you, you're, there's a healthy kind of fear. When you're around the creator of all of the creation, the God who made everything in love, there's a healthy kind of fear, wonder, awe, even a trembling before God that is missing from the heart of Uzzah and others involved in this story. In fact, fear here is a good thing. We think of it as bad, but there is a healthy kind. Walter Brueggemann, a top-shelf Old Testament scholar, in his work on this story, just writes that the fear that was generated by the event was positive, not negative. He writes, quote, when people are no longer awed, respectful, or fearful of God's holiness, the entire community is put at risk. Now, watch what happens. 10. David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David, or Jerusalem. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and notice, the Lord blessed him and his entire household. It's just sitting in his garage, like just there. Like, okay, David, sure, you're scared of this thing. All right, I have three-car garage. I'm a rich farmer or whatever he is. It's just there, and all of a sudden, God starts blessing him. You know, for every story in the Old Testament that we read and we cringe and we scratch our head and we don't get the violence or God sounds a little bit more East Coast than West Coast, you know, he's just not quite as nice as we want him to sound or whatever, there are so many stories where God is just blessing, blessing. Just do a word study sometime on blessing in the library of Scripture. It will radically alter your view of God. In fact, in the char- most of the characters in what we call the Old Testament, their main beef with God is not his violence or his unkindness. It's his nonviolence and his kindness toward all pe- the people they want him to smite. This is what Jonah is mad at God about. I knew you would just go forgive people because he literally says, you're compassionate and full of mercy. And he's saying that to spite God. He's angry because this God just goes around blessing all and sundry. And the blessing is always when you're in God's presence. So Obed-Edom, he's just sitting in God's presence. The ark is in his garage or whatever. And he's just beginning to experience the blessing of the presence of God. Now, 12. King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. And we don't know what that means. Was he like just his fields, like, you know, reaping tenfold or his wife got pregnant with triplets or whatever ancient agrarian economy. I don't know what blessing was at that time, but was just blessing. So David's like, I want in on that. He went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed. He's like, okay, I want it now. To the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Just stop and think about that for a minute. How many steps? Six. Think about that. You're a Levite. You have the ark now on your shoulder, not on the cart. Okay, got that one down now. (laughs) One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, guys, put it down. You stop. You build an altar. You sacrifice an animal. I'm kind of plant-based. Any hunters in the room? That's not a two-minute job, right? You sacrifice an animal. 
you burn it as an act of worship to God. Pick back up. One, two, three, four, five, six. Stop, stop. Far enough. Down. Altar. Sacrifice. Worship. One, two, three. Do you know how far it is from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David? Ten miles. Yeah. You think traffic is bad (laughs) in the morning. This would have been slow, backbreaking, monotonous, boring work to carry the ark. Again, read the presence and goodness of God back into the city of David. But watch, 16. I'm sorry, 14. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. So as this is happening, there's singing, there's dancing. He's wearing a linen ephod. So that's, you would wear essentially what we would think of as a a dress. But a man would wear, you know, a cloak. And underneath his cloak was kind of an undergarment that was a linen ephod. And it's not like underwear. It was an actual, like, cloak or something. But that was an undergarment to the outer garment. David takes off the outer garment. Because I'm not into dancing. Any of you into dancing? It's okay. We we love you. Say, Fantastic. I'm guessing that when you go dancing, I don't, but when you go, I'm guessing that you don't wear like a fur coat or a big, like really tight jacket. I'm guessing you go John Travolta, you put on a silk shirt, something you can just, you move in, you know what I mean? Just a little, you're limber, you're mobile, you can just move your body in, right? So that's literally what's happening. He takes off his outer garment so he can dance better before God. And there's people singing. This is where likely scholars speculate. People are singing the second half of that psalm. Lift up your heads, O you gates. We welcome you in, the king of glory. These ancient doors as the ark is coming down through the main street, through the gates into the city of Jerusalem. 16. As he's, he's dancing, all Israel bringing up the ark of the Lord, shout, sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, this is kind of a subplot here, daughter of Saul, that's his arch kind of nemesis, former king, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. This would have been in what was called the Holy of Holies, a room inside the, this is pre-temple, which is a few decades later, the tabernacle, the kind of precursor to it. It's in the Holy of Holies. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israel. This is tens of thousands of people, both men and women. This is an act of social justice. And all the people went to their homes. David returned home to bless his household. Because when you are in the presence of God and you are blessed, you become an agent of blessing to others. The more time that you spend in the presence of God, the more you will find yourself come out not only blessed, but as an agent of blessing and love to others. And the story goes on. Now, my point is just this. Most scholars speculate this is the backstory to Psalm 24. A nation and a generation cut off from God's presence, a time of social unrest, moral and spiritual decay, political turmoil and infighting, and an ache for the return of God's presence and with it his blessing. 
That's piece one. Piece two, theology, back to Psalm 24. The number one pastoral question that I get is actually not about Jesus' teachings on sexuality. It's not about the Bible and what the heck is this. It's not about violence in the Old Testament. The number one question I get is about our prayer that you hear most every week at Bridgetown, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Now this prayer did not start with the Holy Spirit Conference three years ago. It did not start with John Wimber and the Vineyard Movement, if you know that. It dates back to the early church. In Greek, it was called the Epiclesis, and the early church would pray it usually over the bread and the wine at the Lord's table at the weekly gathering. Come, Holy Spirit. When historians and um, scholars of historic theology like research the data behind it, the best interpretation is that this is hundreds of years, decades before the Nicene Creed, hundreds of years before kind of the Catholic theology of the Middle Ages around the bread and the wine and what we now call communion, all that the early church was aware of. They were somehow processing and just trying to work it all out. The experience, the felt experience that when they were at the table, at the love feast, around the table, full meal, in the community of Jesus, and somebody would break bread and somebody would pour out the wine, that they would experience the presence of Jesus in a way that was different from during the rest of the week. That something was happening in that moment that was not happening in all of the other moments. Something was in that bread and that wine that was not in like the toast and eggs the next morning before work. Something was around that table that wasn't at the food cart with, you know, coworker George on lunch break on Thursday. Something, they were experiencing God's presence in that time and place in a way that was special and unique to other times and other places. And they began to realize that they were experiencing Jesus' presence through the bread and through the cup by what he himself called the Holy Spirit. And so they would sit down to eat and they would pray the epiclesis. They would pray, come Holy Spirit. And we still pray that prayer today. In particular, right before a time that is set apart for the special purpose of an encounter with God. We prayed at the beginning of a gathering or at the end of a teaching when we really want God to move or heal the sick or pray for a prophetic word or break something in our heart or break off a demonic manifestation or we pray it when we sit down at the table as a community, whatever it is. And still, this is the number one question I get. Okay, come Holy Spirit, but isn't the Holy Spirit already here? The word spirit is ruach in Hebrew. It can also be translated air or wind. And so people ask me, isn't praying come Holy Spirit kind of like praying come oxygen? When the oxygen is not only all around you, it is in you. And it is a valid and legitimate question. Here's the short answer. Theologians from the early church, from a few decades after the New Testament, all the way down to today, have for a very long time drawn some kind of a distinction between, and different language at different seasons of the church, but for today, between the omnipresence of God and the manifest presence of God. Omnipresence is the idea that there is nowhere God is not. We pick that up in verse 1 of 24. The earth is the Lord's, everything in it. Under this rubric, the main problem in our felt experience where so many people don't feel God's presence in day-to-day life 
Under this rubric, the main problem is awareness. There's a saying in the mystic literature, what's missing is awareness. Meaning the reason so many of us don't feel God's presence isn't because he's absent, it's because we're absent. We're on our phone or watching TV or we're in the noise and busyness and chaos of the city and just for whatever reason, our mind is cut off from God. Prayer in this rubric is about centering our mind as the portal to our whole person on the reality of God. It's about actualization. So a good working definition of a Christian mystic is somebody who is wanting to experience practically what is true of them theologically. So Jesus said, I am in the Father and you are in me, right? This is, um, Paul said that we are in Christ. Theologians for hundreds of years have used the language of union. So a Christian mystic who's somebody who says, that's a great idea. I want to experience practically what is true of me theologically. I am one with God. I want to experience that. Not in the Hindu sense where I'm lost in God, but in the Christian sense where I am in God and God is in me. And the main barrier between me and that kind of a felt experience of the presence of God is awareness. So I need to get off my phone, I need to change my habits, work out my morning routine, I need to do some breathing prayer, Christian mindfulness, or whatever, and I need to center on the reality of God. Now, I believe in every single thing that I just said. That's omnipresence. Some things it doesn't explain. It doesn't explain what the mystics also call the dark night of the soul. When you do all the stuff, you calm your mind, you calm your body, you present yourself before God, and you feel far more of God's absence than his presence. And it's actually not your fault, it's God's fault. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. It doesn't explain why there are moments when we pray and somebody is healed and other moments when we pray and, this, and somebody is dead. It doesn't explain why even when we do all the right things, sometimes we sense God's presence in the room and other times we don't. For that, we come to this idea of manifest presence. Manifest presence is the idea that, yes, all of that is true. What's missing is awareness. We're all our mind, in particular in the attention economy, sure. But there are times and places when God, and this is a word picture, it's anthropomorphic, but when God turns his face to you, when God is present to you or to a community in a special and unique way, Yes, theologically, God is always with us, but experientially, there are just times, you have to be honest, when his presence seems much more acute than others. Nick Drake, who was here for our first Holy Spirit conference three years ago, PhD from the UK, his dissertation was on charismatic worship. What is happening in a church like ours where hundreds of people are singing to Jesus and there's some kind of an encounter? He writes this. This is not from his dissertation. This is from his email to me Thursday. Um, (laughs) All through, all through this era of the church, God is, of course, omnipresent. But also there are local times and places and spaces where he is actively at work in a particular, manifest, tangible, intensified way. This is not merely our more open to him, nor our tuning in to what already is going on. Although both of these are happening. But it is also his choice, his momentum, his openness to our particularity in this particular place, in this particular time. And the word picture for this in Psalm 24, and actually all through the library of Scripture, it is that of a face that is turned toward you. Now here is my clumsy, and I apologize, it is clumsy. 
But here is my clumsy attempt to explain that word picture. Hypothetical scenario. Let's say you're here. You're one of the 68% of our church that is single. And you sign up to work in Bridgetown Kids. First Sunday there, you meet the love of your life, right? It just happens all the time, all right? <laughs> sign up at bridgetown.church slash kids. <laughs> you're there. You fall in love. A few months later, you walk down the aisle. You go... <laughs> You go on a honey, hey, you're Christians, like, we don't have long engagements. If you're a real Christian, everything is short, all right? You go on your honeymoon, you come back, and you finally move in together, then and only then, please. That's a whole other teaching podcast the last few weeks. You move in together for the first time, and let's say, hypothetical scenario, you both work from home. And so you're there, you work from your living room or home office, and you're both like off-the-charge extroverts. You're together all the time. You even exercise together, at least for the first few months. It won't last, but at least for the first few months. <laughs> you go on your run together every day. You walk the dog together. You grocery shop. You are literally, hypo- hypothetical scenario, you are always, you're like, my dream scenario. Some of you are just crying in the back row right now. <laughs> my dream, you're always together. In this hypothetical scenario, There's a difference in experience of relationship from when you're just both in the living room and you're both doing email for work. Or one of you is, you know, working on a new spreadsheet for some project and the other is on a FaceTime call with a client. Or one of you is cooking dinner and the other is doing laundry or whatever the thing is. You're still with each other. You're in each other's presence. You're together. But that is a different experience from if you were to say, hey, my love. And you, it's kind of, you're French all of a sudden. Um, (laughs) I say that to my wife. It's a little bit cheesy, but whatever. Hey, my love. And if she were to turn her face toward you, and you were to turn your face toward her, and look at each other, and make eye contact with each other, and you were to come closer together, and you were to speak to each other, and communicate. Say you were even to make love. Don't use your imagination for this part, but just, you were there. You have to agree, that is, (laughs) that is, okay, we're just going to go with this. That, that is a different level of intimacy than when you're just in the same room together. In the same way, there is a difference between the omnipresence and the manifested presence of God. Again, clumsy attempt to just put language around. There are times and places where we encounter God. Now, again, all metaphors break down. That's just an attempt. But we see this both and in Psalm 24. Now, history, theology, done. Back to Psalm 24. Just reread with me. Verse 1 and 2 are about omnipresence. The earth is the Lord, everything in it, the world, all who live in it. He founded on the seas, he established on the waters. There is creator, there is creation. God is over all and in all. Verse 3 and on is about manifest presence. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? That's language for the temple mountain, Jerusalem. Who may stand in his holy place? That's another name for the holy of holies in the center of the tabernacle and later the temple. Now, pause. Again, if you've been reading the Bible for your whole life since you were seven, thanks mom, all of that, then it's easy to just skip right over this. That was a rhetorical question 
at this time and place? And you know what the answer was? The answer was not verse 4, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's the wrong answer. The right answer was the high priest once a year on Yom Kippur. Only the high priest was allowed into the Holy of Holies. King David wasn't even allowed in there. The prophet, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, doesn't matter. You're not allowed in there. Only the high priest was allowed in there, and even he was only allowed in once a year. That's the answer. That's a rhetorical question. You're expecting that answer, but notice David's answer. For the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. David is famous for living out the new covenant right in the middle of the old covenant. Theologically, he was anointed by the Spirit of God, by the prophet Samuel, which means he begins as king of Israel to experience the kind of relationship with God that will later be available to all the people of God after Jesus' resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and the coming of the Holy Spirit, but was not at this point available to anybody other than the anointed one, the king. And so David is an advanced sign of what's coming for all the people of God, an advanced sign of God's end goal for the people of God that you and I now live in and take for granted and wake up and just say, hi, God, good morning, and experience God in our mind, God in our body, things that we all take for granted, I do every day, that was a gift, that was not an offer or an option for the vast majority of people in David's age. But David is an advanced sign. David sees the heart of God in the new covenant. And he sees that God's heart isn't just for the high priest on Yom Kippur. It's for all. Clean hands, pure heart, does not trust an idol or swear by a false god. They, verse 5, will receive what? Blessing, because the blessing is from the presence of God. There it is, from the Lord. He's been, think if he wrote this poem after watching Obed-Edom. They will receive blessing and vindication from God their Savior, such as the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Now we come to the heart of the psalm. The word here is seek. It's bakwash in Hebrew. Can you say that? Well done. And it can be translated to seek or to search for, or to look for, or to ask for, or to call on, or to find, or to discover, or to demand, or to possess, or to want, or my personal favorite, to pursue. And this word is used, not just here, it is used all through the Psalms and all through the library of Scripture. A small sampling, Psalm 27. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I what? Seek chase after, go for, pursue, that I may dwell, this is what I really want, in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Psalm 40. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad, be happy in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. Psalm 63, you God are my God, earnestly I seek you. Earnestly, with passion, with intensity, with desire, with ache in the marrow of my bones. I seek you, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Now we miss this because we live in the Pacific Northwest. Water is not a problem here. Sunshine is. This was written in the desert by a Middle Eastern Jew. It's just, I just flip it in my mind. I just think, 
I ache for sunlight, God, for vitamin D, not from a pill, from the sky. Like I, like I just flip it and all of a sudden, yes, that is right from my heart. The same language is used later by the prophets. Jeremiah, this is God speaking through Jeremiah. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to me. Listen, listen to you. You will seek me, there's our word, and find me. Notice, when you seek me with what? All your heart. Not a little bit of your heart, not some of your heart, not a corner of your heart or a budget of your heart. All of it. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Or the prophet Isaiah, come all who are thirsty. Again, desert imagery. Come to the waters. You have no money. Come buy and eat. Why spend money on what's not bread? Your labor on what does not satisfy. Why are you chasing after all of these other things? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. This language is also used in the New Testament. Let me highlight one. Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, what a number of scholars argue is the capstone statement in the Sermon on the Mount. Read this with me. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That is a very small sampling. Google on your own time. But notice that in every single example, it is a command to seek God to seek his face with all of your heart, that adjective, earnestly, to pursue God. When I was a teenager, I picked up A.W. Tozer's little book, The Pursuit of God. We have, I think, a few copies left for sale out in the annex. I thank just a little freebie. It's available, I think, for free on Kindle, actually, if you are ungodly and read books on that way. Um, but we have, we have some out there. I picked up this little book. If you know anything about the history of the book, it's fascinating. He wrote the whole thing in one sitting in a train ride from Chicago, all-night train ride from Chicago to St. Louis. Started it when he sat down on the train, finished it when they pulled into St. Louis the next morning. And it's a powerful, short little read that honestly gave shape. I think I was 17 or so when I read it. Gave shape to my relationship with God in my teenage years, through my 20s. I read it so many times, and I came back to it a few months ago, and I had not read it in years. And honestly, I was expecting to not like it that much anymore. I was a very different person when I was younger, and I thought, well, you know, now I have a master's degree, and I'm more sophisticated, and I live in Portland. I live in a pretty cool neighborhood in Portland, you know, and all the stuff. And so I was expecting to think it's kind of quaint or fundamentalist, and I was just on the verge of tears as I was reading through the resonance with my heart. Let me just read to you one paragraph from his opening chapter. He writes this. To have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love, scorned indeed by the too easily satisfied religionists, but justified in happy experience by the children of the burning heart. Love that language. He had a small group of friends that he called the Fellowship of the Burning Heart. Start that Facebook group. (laughs) Come near to the holy men and women of the past, And you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for him. They prayed and wrestled and sought for him day and night, in season and out. And when they had found him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long seeking. I want to deliberately encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our present low estate. Complacency, listen, 
is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Let me read that again. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted. Too bad that with many of us he waits so long, so very long in vain. Is it just me or does that resonate with you at some kind of a heart level? You know, Bridgetown Church, and I'm nearing the end here, but if you're new to our community, is really a hybrid of two church traditions, the contemplative and the charismatic, which at first glance, if you know anything about kind of the church topography of the Western world, at first glance, both traditions present as very different. In fact, kind of polar opposites in many ways. The contemplative is all about daily discipline, morning prayer, liturgy, fasting, Sabbath, The charismatic is far more spontaneous, far more high P on the Myers-Briggs, far more experience-based, like in the moment, what's God going to do now? You never know. The contemplative's like, I know what God's about to do. (laughs) It's at the end of my liturgical prayer, right? Charismatic's like, who knows what God's going to do? Who knows what I'm going to do today? Whatever. It's just, it is. (laughs) The contemplative is more about time alone in the quiet. The charismatic is more about time with the community of God, often in crowds or singing to God. The the contemplative is more individualistic and introverted. The charismatic is more emotional and more extroverted. The contemplative is a little bit more intellectual. It's, It's very cerebral. It tends to appeal to more educated people or bookish people or readers or thinkers, whereas the charismatic, it's far more about the feeling in the moment. The contemplative, there's a real high value for peace in the presence of God. And the charismatic, there's a very high value for passion. Stir a passion in my heart. Wake up a heart for the nations, for the world, all of it. Now, it's really easy to think of these two traditions as different. They are actually the most two similar traditions, I think, in all of the church. They both share the exact same heart. They will do whatever it takes to encounter God. They are not satisfied with ideas about God. Bible and theology is great. It's not enough. Even to meditate on the cross is great. It's not enough. They're not satisfied with feelings about God. An emotional high at church is great, but it's not enough. They want God himself. And so they will get up early. They will stay up late. They will fast. They will go without food. They will pray. They will travel to a monastery in the desert or like sing at a Bethel concert for four hours. They will do whatever it takes to encounter God. That is the heart, the exact same heart behind both traditions to seek God's face. It comes as no surprise that the philosopher Dallas Willard, who has played such a key role in our church, you thought I wasn't going to quote him, I'm not, (laughs) spent the last 20 years of his life in a little vineyard church north of L.A. where his wife Jan still attends. It's easy if you are familiar with his work, and we quote him a lot. He doesn't sound like a charismatic. He doesn't use any of the subculture language. He's most likely not a high P on the Myers-Briggs. He's very much an intellectual. But you read his theology, it is 110% charismatic. His book on hearing that we read, we sang that beautiful song early, When You Walk Into a Room. That's a song about manifest presence. In his book on hearing God's voice, which is one of his most accessible books, and it's by far the best thing I've ever read on hearing the voice of God, he would say, as a philosopher from the University of Southern California, well-respected philosopher, that Jesus in prayer will walk up to you and speak to you. 
Whoa, who says that? When you walk into a room. That's manifest presence. Because whatever the spiritual discipline or practice is, whether you are practicing silence and solitude all by yourself at a monastery or singing to indie rock worship music with hundreds of other people at church, the goal is the same. It is to encounter God. In fact, we need a healthy balance of both traditions. The odds are you gravitate more to one or the other simply based on your personality and maybe a little bit on your background or family of origin. I, for sure, gravitate way more to the contemplative side. I'm introverted. I'm a reader. My idea of like seeking the face of God is a 400-page book on attachment theory or whatever. Like That is fantastic. And so for me, the constant invitation of Jesus is to journey back to the charismatic side, to journey into the room, because the spirit of Jesus is always moving you out into the room to love. For some of you, it's the other direction. You are most home here. You're most home around other people. You're most home in noise and singing and worship. And the call for you is to journey to time alone, to open up your soul, to meet God at the depth of your being. My point is we all want to grow and mature toward a balance of both. And and the very simple word I have to pass on to you this week, all of that was introduction, by the way. I really only have about 30 seconds of something to say from the Spirit of God. That was just to earn my paycheck, okay? So (laughs) really, this is all I really sense in my spirit in particular to pass on to our church. This very simple phrase, seek his face. Seek his face. It is so easy to go through the motions with God in any relationship, but in particular in a religious one, especially if you've been following Jesus for a while. So easy to just show up at church, sing, listen to a teaching, take a little bit of notes, great, fantastic, have a great week, bye, see ya, go home. It's so easy to just wake up in the morning, read your Bible, cool, Joshua chapter 15, great, Bible Bible project video, all right, that was cool, bye, on about your day. Show up for your meal Thursday night with your community. Oh, cool. The bread is the bread of Jesus. Okay, the wine's the blood of Jesus. All right, cool. Yeah, great. How was your week, Susie? Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's just so, and none of that is bad. I am all for discipline. You never know when God is going to walk into your rooms. I want to be there when he shows up. I'm all for discipline. But we have to remember that all of the disciplines are a means to an end, and the end is to encounter God. It's to daily and weekly present our mind and our body before God's spirit and truth and let him transform us to love. We can practice all of the spiritual disciplines and not seek God's face. We can read through the Bible in a year until we die and never seek God's face. We can never miss a Sunday church unless if we're on vacation in Florida or have the flu or whatever and still not seek his face. You can show up for your community meal every Tuesday night and not seek his face, or you can do whatever it takes to encounter the presence. Our friend John Tyson was here two weeks ago, and he said a a number of great things that I'm still thinking about, but the weird one that really stuck out to me, that just lodged in my mind, was actually not in one of the sessions. It was during a Q&A with our staff and some of our key leaders 
on Sunday afternoon, we were talking about prayer. They're doing some really interesting things in New York around a prayer movement for spiritual renewal. We're dreaming about some similar things with other churches, with Imago and other churches in the city. We have this new building. There's a chapel in that we're dreaming about. What would, what would prayer look like? What would a prayer chapel look like? What would daily walking the city praying for a move of God look like? What would morning prayer every day look like? So we're just, no plans, just dreaming right now. And we were asking questions about what they're doing in New York, really beautiful stuff. And he just had this great line. He said, you know, we need a sustained urgency. If all you have is urgency, you burn out. If you're always sustainable, though, you're irrelevant. And I just have been thinking about that. I think coming off of our Sabbath practice in winter, we have such a high value. I have such a high value for Sabbath, rest, emotional health, soul formation, unhurry your life to the way of Jesus. All of that is such a high value. And I'm still there, 100%. But it was a good reminder for me that we also need a healthy dose of urgency. None of us want to say this, but it's most likely that we're living at the beginning of the decline of Western civilization. Our nation, as we all know, is just a disaster right now. And the odds are it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse. I'm just here to encourage you as your pastor with hope, all right? (laughs) Um, But honest, I have great hope for the future of the church. I don't have a lot of hope for our country right now. And again, don't let my pessimism bleed into you. But you you have to rest, but at least consider my pessimism, all right? (laughs) You have to think about this. We live at a time of moral and social and spiritual decay, a time of great tragedy in our leadership, a, a a crisis of leadership, not just in politics, in the church, across the board. A time when so many of our friends are leaving the church. How many of you have watched friends leave the church and leave Jesus over the last few years of your life? And it's just gut-wrenching. There is a time to Sabbath and to rest. I'm all for it. And there is a time to show up and to pray and to fast and to seek God's face for a return of his presence and his goodness, not just to your life and not even just to our church or even our city, but to our generation. And that is the very simple call that I think that Jesus has on us in the week ahead as we move toward the Holy Spirit conference is a sustained urgency. Sabbath, rest, sleep, do the stuff. And let's seek God together as a generation on behalf of our generation. Let's have clean hands and a pure heart. There, however you want it, that's, which is a line about holiness. Clean hands, external holiness. What you do with your body, pure heart, internal holiness. Heart is biblical code for your thinking, your feeling, and your desire. What you think about, what you feel, what you want. This is a call to holiness, external and internal. We hate to admit it, but there is a direct line of correspondence between your holiness and your sense of the manifest presence of God. I don't like to hear that, you don't like to hear that, but Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Our sin, major or minor, compromise or rebellion, it is a blockage to the sense of the presence of God in our life. And so there's a call in this psalm to have clean hands, to have a pure heart, to purge your heart of any idolatry or vanity, to not swear falsely. Actually, that line that in the NIV is translated, uh, swear by a false god. The ESV is a little bit better. It's swear deceitfully. This is actually about relationships. This is a world before Square or the debit card or a bank where most commerce was done person to person and it was really easy to rip people off. What he's saying here is you're not crosswise with anybody in a relationship. You're righteous. You're right in relationship with other people. 
This is a call to holiness, external, internal, your worship, your motivation of God, your relationships with other people. It is a call to purify and purge yourself to prepare for a return of God's presence and goodness to your city and to your generation. And this is what I think God's call on our church is. So this coming week, I am calling you to seek the face of God. A few practical things that we and your leaders are calling you into, as best we can tell a way to say yes to what we think the spirit of Jesus is stirring. One, this coming week, this is not on any email or anything on Instagram, this is just, we did this yesterday. We're hosting morning prayer and worship every single day this week from 7 to 8 a.m., Monday, Wednesday, Friday at the prayer chapel at Holiday Park if you're in Northeast or closer to that, Tuesday and Thursday right here in this room if you're downtown or on the west side. We would love to have you come one morning or all five. I will be there tomorrow morning, 7 a.m., dead tired from preaching, way too long, but I will be there. would love to have you come and join us to seek God's face. Two, we want to invite you into a Lenten practice of your choice as an act of consecration to God. We don't follow the church calendar at Bridgetown. That's a long story. But many followers of Jesus between Ash Wednesday, which was a few weeks ago, and Easter for 40 days give up something for Lent as an act of consecration to God. Meat or alcohol or sugar or TV or social media or shopping or whatever it is. And we invite you, 40 days is a long time. How about five or six? That's a little bit more doable. We invite you to adopt a Lenten practice for the week ahead to gear up for our time Friday and Saturday night. Some of our really good friends, a number of churches we're in relationship with, uh, Mark Sayers and Red Church in Melbourne, our friend Tyler Staten at TGC Williamsburg in Brooklyn, and Darren Roundsend and others from the Garden are doing what they call the New Nazarite Vow. It's super intense, and it's basically spend a full day in fasting every week. This is for Lent. No alcohol or sugar at all, no social media, TV, or film, and no shopping. And they're doing this not at all because they are legalistic, but it's under the working theory. My buddy Tyler in Williamsburg said, I said, why are you doing this? And he's like literally not cut his hair for a year. It's gorgeous, but um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a whole other thing. And he had this great line. He said, you know, if I want to minister to the people of Brooklyn, I have to free myself from the idols of Brooklyn. What are the idols of our millennial cities? If you're in a Brooklyn or a Portland or an SF or an LA, it's food, it's sugar, it's alcohol, it's social media, it's entertainment, it's consumerism, and it's image. So what would it look like to set something aside, one or all of that, and consecrate yourself to God to move toward holiness in the week ahead? Finally, we just want to invite you to show up this weekend. 99% of following Jesus is just showing up. That's it. That's a t- that really, that's the hardest part and the best part. So we just want to invite you, come Friday, 7 p.m., come Saturday night, come Saturday morning if you want for the prayer training, come back next Sunday. Let's come together as a church, not just to hear some nice teaching. Alan's amazing, and it will be such a gift to have him here. Not just to sing. Luke and Anna are amazing from the U.K. Can't wait to worship with them. But let's come together to seek his face. Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. 
We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit bridgetown.church slash give for more information. Thanks for listening.